I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast supported by Pragati, a flagship media initiative of the Takshashila Institution. We're a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like to bring a fresh perspective to Indian affairs and an Indian perspective to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello and welcome to All Things Policy. My name is Pranav. And today I'm joined by Aditya Ramanathan to talk about the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. The Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, or NPT, came into force in 1970. It has been hailed as the cornerstone of multilateral arms control and the non-proliferation regime. The UN is holding its 10th review conference of the NPT for the entirety of August. The review conference is held once every five years. To end this episode, I'm joined by my colleague Aditya Ramanathan. to discuss the proceedings and expectations of the 10th review conference welcome aditya great to be here pranav aditya over 2 years ago you and i sat across each other talking about the npt review conference the npt review conference was originally set to be held in 2020 but it got delayed because of the pandemic and other instances and during our conversation in 2020 we summarized the health of the global order in two words not good Can you tell us in two years what has changed? Has anything become better? Has the health of the global nuclear order become any better from not good? Wow! I wish I had a lot of good news here. Firstly, thanks for you know, uh, two years is not a lot of time for the nuclear order to change. But uh, surprisingly enough, perhaps depressingly enough, there have been some changes that we've seen, and these go against the spirit, the stated spirit of the nuclear non-proliferation treaty. One uh, development that I think is well known is the discovery of at least three major silo fields in North Central China. These are fields for housing ICBMs, uh, potentially the DF forty one solid fueled ICBMs. And you know, uh, silo fields are a clear sign of the expansion of a nuclear arsenal. Now we don't know if every single one of those uh, silos is going to be populated or whether you know missiles move around through an underground system. It you know it it The very fact that these silos exist means that other states have to take the existence of those silos and the potential uh, presence of missiles inside those silos uh, as part of their own nuclear strategy and as part of their own nuclear force structure. Uh, so this is not a great development if if you're interested in reducing the number of nuclear weapons in the world and encouraging restraint. Another development has been has actually come from the United Kingdom. The UK raised the ceiling of its nuclear warheads from 180 to 260. This happened just earlier this year. And presently the UK has I think 195 warheads of of which about 120 are operational. But this expansion of the ceiling will mean the UK will simply have a lot more nuclear warheads. Which will mean that the UK will have a lot more nuclear warheads operational at any given time as part of its continuous at sea deterrent. A third development has been the ongoing debate in the U.S. about submarine-launched cruise missiles. And submarine-launched cruise missiles are one of those things that basically disappeared from the U.S. arsenals after the Cold War. But you know, there is now an ongoing vigorous debate about them once again. The Navy actually cut its budget for such missiles in its FY 2023 budget. But you know, funding for these has been actually cleared by the Biden administrations. 
So the National Nuclear Security Administration or NNSA will continue developing a, a warhead for these uh, SLCMs. Now, why exactly the US would need an SLCM? I have not actually heard a rational or coherent explanation for this, you know, beyond the, you know, the broad sort of blanket statement that you need to present all sorts of different options to the president in a time of crisis. But what those options would be and what advantages they'd bring certainly elude me. But nevertheless, this is something that's at least back on the table. I suppose if there's a silver lining in all of this, Pranav, it is that uh, India's no-first-use policy still holds. And similarly, the Biden administration uh, last year did flirt with the idea of a sole-purpose declaration for uh, as, as part of its nuclear posture review. Uh, now, with the Russian-Ukraine war, I, I think it's unlikely that we're going to see such a declaration in the nuclear posture review whenever it comes out, whether late this year or next year. So, you know, that's to the extent that it was good news, it was short-lived. And of course, finally, we must point out that Russia did issue fairly explicit nuclear threats on the, at the outset of its war with Ukraine. And whether or not those had any effect, the fact that such nuclear threats are being made and being made fairly explicitly is, you know, not a great sign for where the world is headed. Yeah, that's a very great summarization of all the bad things that have happened. But I guess... To talk about something positive, the TPNW or the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons has finally entered into force, even though it will not lead us to any disarmament. It finally entered into force. So most of the non-nuclear weapon states that are not allies of the US have a consensus that we need disarmament at some point. And it's a, quite a dichotomy that you have the, the P5, the permanent five members of the Security Council and their allies who are not rooting for disarmament, and you have the rest of the world, and you have a large part of the world who are in support of TPNW. That's, and a lot, there's a lot of energy within these communities. A lot of NGOs have been able to uh, garner support at the grassroots level. And, and that's a good sign because it's a good sign that the next generation of nuclear scholars will, will, will perhaps bring some change. But politics plays its ways in such that things may not be good. The other bad sign, of course, is Sweden and Finland joining NATO. Sweden, perhaps for the very longest time, was a proponent of the sound, but they, they did not sign the TPNW because uh, they felt that it was the wrong direction. And they issued a working paper uh, for the NPT Review Conference called as the Stepping Stones Paper. It's colloquially called as the Stepping Stones Paper, which laid down the steps that countries should take to gradually go towards the sound. That document has in essence, been thrown out of the window uh, once Sweden issued a statement that it accepts the role of nuclear weapons in national security because they were entering into an alliance and Article 5 of the NATO has collective defense and collective defense is held by American and to some certain extent a British nuclear umbrella. So bad news and good news on that side, I, I, I would add. What do you think about that, Aditya? Yeah, that, that's an interesting point you make. Pranav, especially about DPNW, because, you know, at least it does reflect the stated intent of so many non-nuclear states to not actually adopt nuclear weapons. And and this is, you know, over and above the NPT itself. So, you know, proponents of the NPT often tell you that the, the treaty has been crucial in halting or slowing proliferation. And that might be true to some extent. But, you know, so that's, that's, the, that's sort of the supply problem that it's addressing. There's also a demand issue in I think that we sometimes overestimate the demand for nuclear weapons. A lot of our states don't necessarily see nuclear weapons when they do a cost-benefit analysis as particularly important for their own security. 
you know, they seem to be happy with their own conventional forces and so on. What have, you know, what is your sense of Pranav? Like, where do you think that the NPD stands today? I mean, it's, you know, for most people in India, NPTs and treaty is one of those few nuclear weapons related treaties that most people know. It's practically a household term, but it doesn't have a, have an especially, uh, but it, but it's not especially held in high regard in India. What is the state of, of the NPT and what is its future, if any? So the state of the NPT is that the NPT that doesn't work on its own. Just because you have a treaty that doesn't stop any country from acquiring nuclear weapons. You know, North Korea pursued a secret nuclear program even while it was in the NPT. It was only after they had assembled all the components for a nuclear weapon that they withdrew from the treaty. On, in similar way, the NPT works because some countries, like the United States, use their power to stop countries from proliferating. There has been new documented evidence to suggest that the survival of the NPT really depended on how well the US and its allies, and including the Soviet Union, a large, a large amount of cooperation with the Soviet Union, ensured that you had counter-proliferation measures, sanctions, and arm twisting, using trade as a bargain chip, um, were used to ensure that countries like Algeria, Sweden, Norway, these countries did not pursue a nuclear program. This is quite well documented these days. I, I read a very fantastic book called Hegemon's Toolkit, which goes into a great length about how the NPT was enforced because of sanctions and because of counter-proliferation. Even countries like Israel, which ultimately did not did not sign the NPT, the Americans had a tacit understanding that Israel would not conduct nuclear tests, which is the way they, Israel was able to maintain its ambiguity over its nuclear status and ensure that its neighbors aren't alarmed by the nuclearization, the overt nuclearization of Israel. These are some ways that the NPT has worked. The NPT, by and large, when, when we talk about obligations in good faith, it may have worked because if you compare the Soviet arsenal in the Cold War, uh, the number of theater nuclear weapons and the number of uh, MERV warheads they had have uh, reduced dramatically. And now we are, for the sake of counting, we have about 2,000 nuclear weapons, which were about 6,500 to 7,000 warheads in storage. That's still quite a, quite a low number compared to the numbers of the 70s and 80s. In that sense, you could say that the the nuclear weapon states have maintained their obligations of Article 6 of the NPT, which says that they must negotiate, they, they will undertake negotiations in good faith to seize the arms race and ensure general and complete disarmament. In, in that sense, the NPT has worked. The NPT has not worked in many cases because it requires arm twisting. And you have countries like North Korea or even South Africa, which were ne never, never a part of it. And they only became, South Africa only disarmed after the Cold War. So it's very difficult to assess the value of the NPT without these parallel measures that were taken by the superpowers. Yeah, another country that's of course always absent from any NPT review conferences is India, India, Pakistan, North Korea, of course, are not part of it. But part of, you know, the international system keeps changing and both, you know, both political and technological contexts keep changing as we keep pointing out. How relevant is the NPT and how helpful is it with just dealing with the issues around arms control? Because, you know, while we're talking about disarmament and all that, the, the really pressing issue, the one where there is, you know, where there's some prognosis of, of you know, potentially of 
I'd say that again. Where there's some prognosis of, you know, limited success is, you know, is, is arms control. And how has the NPT tackled this issue of, of arms control? How has it helped or enabled or hindered the progress of arms control? Because we, of course, we've seen arms control agree, agree. I'll say that again. Because of course, we've seen arms control agreements between the US and Russia fall apart with the INF Treaty, ABMO, skies and so on. Where does the NPT fit it? And the NPT fits into that in the sense that uh, the, the both the US and Russia see some level of obligation in seizing the arms race because of their own interests. They have their own interest to to cap their arsenals. Uh, going back to the ninety, the late nineteen nineties, when the US and Russia were negotiating the terms of the START three agreement, Russia was very adamant that the Americans would go to levels as low as. 1,500 deployed nuclear weapons, including straightforward counting. We're not talking about skewed counting where bombers are counted as one nuclear weapon. Right? Where the, the Russians really wanted to go to very, very low numbers because they could not keep up with the budgets, the amount it used, the cost that nuclear weapons would take up in maintaining them. In that sense, I, I think the NPT did play a role because it was always in the back of their heads that they were trying to reduce the arms race, that the global environment changed. And the NPT was this was the this was the time for the NPT to shine because the Western the superpowers would forego their arms races and they would essentially pursue in good faith to enforce the NPT in the most stringent manner possible, which is the reason why you had such stringent policies or, ne- or attempts to negotiate agreements with North Korea and with Iran. In that sense, the superpowers do think they have a they have a peripheral yet important role to play in displaying their obligations. Other, other than that, they see that bilateral arms control does not have any effect on multilateral agreements. Other than that, the state of the NPT is most of the non-nuclear weapon states, and including countries that have signed, including organizations that were that played a key role in the TPNW, still invoke the NPT and say that the NPT is still important because you have a treaty in place that ensures that there is international law by which standard no country can obtain nuclear weapons. When they have to obtain nuclear weapons or nuclear material or technology to, for building nuclear weapons, they have to jump all these hoops that were built over 50 years in order to get to that point. Because acquiring, nu- acquiring nuclear technology is not easy, especially weapon, especially for building weapons. So in that sense, the infrastructure and the agencies that the NPT has created particularly the International Atomic Energy Agency, IAEA, um, has been quite significant for both the superpowers and for the non-nuclear weapon states to make sure that the NPT continues to work the way it is intended. Right. So I'm going to continue playing the role of the NPT skeptic here, Pranav. And I want to ask you, you know, a lot of the assumptions about how the NPT have worked really depend on the upholding of certain norms in international relations. And those are mostly the norms around nuclear proliferation. You know, it's very rare, you know, we have cases like North Korea, but it's very rare for a state to withdraw from the NPT and, uh, you know, develop its own nuclear weapons. Now, what happens if that norm starts to be weakened or broken? What happens when you have one state withdrawing and two states withdrawing and then, you know, you said you have a cascading effect. You know, obviously that that would mean that these states think it's in their interest to pursue nuclear weapons. But, but my, I, I get the sense that a lot of uh, the credit that's given to the NPT is really about states choosing not to acquire nuclear weapons and that that can change as soon as strategic contexts change. Is this something that's brought up at all in the review conference? I mean, you know, 
What have you seen so far in the first few days of, of, of discussions about this? Have states really reflected on the role of the NPT in halting or slowing down nuclear proliferation and maybe to the extent it has not done that? I haven't seen that. Um, in, in, in the most recent pr- proceedings, some countries have said that we must follow the NPT by the word. The, the Western countries have not met their obligations. And they have been very stringent that the bargain, the ultimate bargain of giving up nuclear weapons or giving up the intention to build nuclear weapons means that the Western countries, the nuclear weapon states, must ensure their side of the market, which is providing security assurance and also ensuring that they disarm. But there has been no overt threat when, for example, some saying we have to preserve the NPT because there's going to be a domino effect. If one country leaves the NPT, several will start leaving. We have not seen such overt threats. But long-time participants of the NPT review conference, the NPT process, occasionally joke in, in quite a serious way. Joke in a quite serious way. It sounds silly, but they do joke in quite a serious way that 10 years down the line, we should come to a situation where we say, if we so wish to have the NPT, we really wish we had the NPT right now. There are some parts of the diplomatic core and, and, this, and the policymaking circles that the NPT may not survive precisely because of incidents that you highlight. Um, surveys that, that have been conducted in 2020-21 in South Korea, for example, reflects that a large portion of the right wing in South Korea are considering nuclear weapons. They have, you know, they, they openly consider the option of getting nuclear weapons. Of course, South Korea does not have the kind of material and and the kind of and and, and the kind of processing facilities of plutonium to to have enough material to build a nuclear weapon. The case of Japan is something else. Japan, even though there are peripheral, in, in the periphery, there are individuals who say that they do not, they wish to acquire nuclear weapons. By and large, the sentiment in Japan is that uh, we have the US nuclear umbrella. We are under the protection of an extended deterrence. Therefore, we do not need nuclear weapons. But of course, Japan has a very large stockpile of plutonium that, that could be processed. And it is said that Japan is the only country right now that has enough material and all the technologies to build weapons-grade plutonium. But I, I, do, I do not see a cascading effect. For, for that cascading effect to take place where one country starts leaving the NPT would take more than 20 years. I do not see in the next, I do not foresee the next 10 years to be the case where countries seriously start considering to leave the NPT. Agree. I I don't see I don't see such a cascade immediately either. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Aditya, for that question. And let's take a quick break. Welcome back, everyone. Aditya and I are still talking about nuclear weapons and the non-proliferation treaty. Aditya, let's. I would like to talk about the mood of the review conference. The NPT review conference, as I mentioned earlier, is held once every five years. In 1995, it was a watershed moment for them because they were able to get an indefinite extension of the NPT. Since then, uh, times have been difficult because after the indefinite extension, India and Pakistan went nuclear. And a few years after that, North Korea pulled out of the NPT and that wasn't a great time. And in in 2015, the NPT tried to focus on the issue of the Middle East nuclear weapons were weapons-free zone, they weren't able to get a consensus because Israel refused to come on board with this plan. Instead, they they decided to hold a a Middle East weapons-free zone review meeting. The second meeting was held in late 2021. The first meeting was held in 2020. 
in this review conference, I feel that particularly the US and, and its allies will be lamenting about the way Russia went about justifying its invasion of Ukraine, where it mentioned that Ukraine is hosting or is preparing to build nuclear weapons or other weapons of mass destruction, which was a similar justification given although under different circumstances when the US and its allies launched an invasion against Iraq. The mood this time will be to, to ease the displeasures of the non-nuclear weapon states and provide some assurance that everything's going to be okay. We saw the US statement you know, just before the APTW conference began, the United States and President Biden issued a statement saying that things like AUKUS, where the, the, the US and UK would be providing nuclear reactors for Australian submarines. And it, it was assured that they would, this process would be held to the highest standard and the IAEA would be involved in every step of the way. I feel that this in this NPT review conference will be about easing the blow and making giving assurances that the West particularly will try to do as much as possible to reduce the risk of nuclear war. Uh, what, what about what, what about you? What do you think about the mood of the data of content? Do you think there will be some sort of consensus? I think, Pranav, that unfortunately, the NPT will continue to reflect both the consensus between the close club of, of nuclear weapon states, as they're called, and everyone else. And, uh, you know, this review conference is in its broad details, going to resemble every other review conference that has occurred in that you will have uh, some states that continue to renounce nuclear weapons for real, some states that make a disingenuous commitment to eventually getting rid of nuclear weapons and a bunch of other states that simply don't buy any of it. And I, I really don't expect this review conference to be substantially different in that sense. Okay, we are somewhat in agreement. The mode is really bad in the nuclear world right now. Let's move on to a topic that's our favorite in Takshashila, the global no-first use. As far as I can remember, even though India does not participate in the review conference, it does always provide statements in the UN General Assembly. And in 2013, I remember India had a working paper on negative security assurances, that is, the obligations of the nuclear weapon states to provide security assurances that they would not use nuclear weapons against them. So, and they of course had a, a, a working paper on global no first use where they called upon the nuclear weapon states to come to an agreement on no first use. And that's our favorite topic. What is, what, what is the likeliness of a global no first use? If not a global no first use, no first use agreement among at least two or three nuclear weapon states. Yeah, I think when we assess the likelihood of such an agreement, we should assess it in relation to other stated goals, right? So the stated goals of the NPT are not going to be achieved. And a lot of other arms control agreements have gone and there's no real proposals for what will replace them. So when we talk about, you know, the feasibility of a global no first use agreement, even if it involves just two or three states as its initial core members, even if that's a relatively difficult thing to achieve, it, you know, it, it might be more likely or more feasible than some of the other options. And B, I think some of the upsides from that are significantly better. So I think a GNFU is still something worth discussing. And the, the fact is, I think the fact is that India's position on this has been uh, remarkably consistent, as you pointed out, Prada. India has constantly talked about the desirability of a global no-first-use agreement as one of the potential ways of managing the risks around nuclear weapons. And it, it's, it's, it's both pragmatic and idealistic in its own ways, and I think in, in, in the best of ways. Now, of course, all of this is going to happen in the context of a 
deteriorating international security environment, which definitely makes any sort of GNFU more difficult to achieve than perhaps 10 years back. You know, the Biden administration, like I mentioned earlier, did briefly flirt with the idea of sole purpose, which is somewhat similar to no first use, but you know, that seems to be, go, you know, right out of, gone right out of the window. You know, I think it, uh, the idea of sole purpose was considered in, in much greater seriousness by the Obama administration before they also jettisoned it after pressure from their allies. So, you know, as of now, both India and China are the only potential candidates uh, for, you know, a, a global no first use agreement. The problem is that China refuses to talk to India about nuclear weapons. You know, it, China almost pretends India doesn't have nuclear weapons, which is strange, but you know, it, it simply refuses to engage India on even the most cursory issues, like, you know, just having a strategic dialogue about the purpose of each state's nuclear weapons. So in that sense, I, I think even a global no first use agreement, though definitely more feasible than some other options, is, is going to be really difficult to achieve, you know, without some sort of important breakthroughs or and especially some sort of changes in Chinese thinking. I will say that no first use, uh, India has not done itself any great favors there either because, you know, India has opened itself to criticism of, you know, watering down its no first use policy of caveating it with the 2003 variation on the 99 draft nuclear doctrine and so on, you know, and that, that caveat basically concerned the use of biological and chemical weapons for mass effect. So the idea was that if there was a devastating attack on India with biological or chemical weapons, India reserved the right to potentially use a nuclear weapons in response. Uh, so that, that was the caveat. And then, of course, we've had statements by a couple of defense ministers that seem to indicate some sort of skepticism about the desirability of the first use for India. So I, I'd say that India also hasn't necessarily done itself great favors, but I think the no first use policy is is here to stay. And and then, you know, I don't think we should necessarily believe, you know, some of the skepticism about no first use. You know, it's in the interests of India's adversaries to be skeptical about its no first use policy, but that's not necessarily what they are thinking behind closed doors. And so I think, so I think that India should continue to strengthen its own commitment to no first use and also continue to push for a global no first use agreement. For what it's worth, even if all it achieves is simply getting countries to start thinking creatively about ways in which nuclear risks can be managed, even if all it achieves is that, that's, I think, still better than basically the situation we have where nothing is happening. Yep. Thank you, Aditya. And it would surprise many of us because India and Pakistan have had direct talks on nuclear weapons and we continue to exchange signs of our nuclear production facility and we continue to provide launch notifications. And yet yep. India and Pakistan have not, and India and China have not really had a formal diplomatic dialogue on the role of each of their nuclear weapon, nuclear arsenals. With that, I thank you once again for joining me and I thank our listeners for joining us. Thank you for joining us on All Things Policy. If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM podcast app, ivmpodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at ivmpodcasts on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashilainst or our website takshashila.org.in.